this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, and our topic today is Money Pits, number two. And this is all about the community awareness and our awakening to how driver's license issues impact people's ability to pay, people's ability to work, people's lives, entire family units. And we're just scratching the surface of what happens when driver's licenses are used as a weapon of punishment for legal problems that show up that may or may not have anything to do even with a driver's problem. So to start us off today, we have Shanae. Uh, Talk to us about driver's license issues from your perspective. My experience, first of all, sorry about that. Let me say thank you, Joy, Irene, Debbie, for letting me be on here. And huge shout out to our listeners and KPNW. Uh, I have direct effects from a driver's license being suspended. And not only is it detrimental to my self-esteem, you know, being an adult, not having a driver's license, it also impedes my ability to support myself financially, supporting my education, supporting my recovery by being able to get to places, to get to meetings, to get to events, to function on a daily basis. And Although constitutionally, a driver's license is not required to be an American citizen, it surely has been used, overly used in the criminal legal system as a consequence to crimes that may or may not have had anything to do with actually driving Mm -hmm. badly or driving erratically or causing danger to anyone while driving. It's very oppressing. It is unfair and unjust. My driver's license was actually suspended before I even got one. (laughs) Explain that for a minute, (laughs) Shanae, because that makes absolutely no sense. So I have on my criminal record, multiple driving while license suspended. A little bit of back. How old were you? Oh, gosh, probably 18, 19, 20 to 25 years old. When I was 16 years old, 15 years old, and all my friends were going through driver's ed and all that stuff. um, My grandparents who raised me told me that if I wanted to get my driver's license, they weren't going to pay for the schooling. So I had to wait till I turned 18. So, you know, well, number one, how embarrassing is that? How 
abusive. I feel that was abusive to me. And as a 16 year old kid, when all the other high school kids are driving around, you couldn't drive because you couldn't even go get your schooling because your authority they couldn't pay for it. They said yeah. it, it doesn't, it, I don't need one. That doesn't make any sense. They were very, I don't know, old school. We were upper middle-class family. So it's not like we couldn't afford it. Okay. They went to trips to Reno. My grandma worked full time. My grandpa was a re retired Navy veteran. It's not like we didn't have it. It was more, I believe it was more their perception was if I don't have a license, I can get in less trouble or something. Right. right? right. Which I wasn't a trouble. I wasn't a trouble maker kid. I had great grades. I was into sports. All my friends were into sports during that time. It was, it was really unfair and oppressive. Okay. So at the age of that was about 15 years old. And shortly after that, and probably a couple weeks after this conversation, I went out to a, a house party with some friends and, um, I got taken home by a police officer because I was driving my friend's car because I was the only sober person. I was driving my friend's car and the headlight was out and I got pulled over. So they took me home because my grandparents had reported me as a runaway or that I had left the house without permission or something. And so the cop took me home and my grandfather shortly after that sent me to Issaquah from Burlington to live with my father. So I became homeless. Basically, I was with my dad in an 18 foot camper trailer. He had me driving his truck all the time. Like it just it. Once they told me that it was like it didn't really matter. There was no conversation about safety, about like what's the reason, the real reason why I couldn't get one or anything. So I just started driving anyway. I mean, what else was I going to do? I was, I was couch surfing at friends' houses. I had nowhere to go. Um, I was basically hanging around a bunch of older people in their 20s when I was 16. And they were all driving. So then I was driving. And instead of getting um, driving without licenses, in fact, when I was 15 and I was driving that car that night, that was my driving without a license ticket. Every ticket after that was driving while licensed suspended. And you, and you had never had one originally. No, and I still had never had one. So when I got to work release from prison after serving almost four years in prison, it was one of my top goals. Like, oh my gosh, I've never had one. I'm going to get one. It's like what I want to do. And so I had to really seek out information from people and places and whatever. And, you know, I was really fortunate to have some people put in my life at the right times and the right places. And what I did was I took some of the money from my first paycheck. I called Department of Licensing. They told me what I needed to do is I needed to contact the court because the courts who put it on me and I had to make an arrangement with a collections agency because by now my fines for those tickets were in collections. So then I had to go from the courts to the uh, collection agency. And I had to um, talk to them. And then they told me what I had to do was I had to go through an insurance company and get a high risk SR 22 insurance. I said, how am I, I, how am I supposed to get insurance when I don't a have a car and B don't have a driver's license. And they said, Oh, you just, you can do it. And so I contacted an insurance agency in Bellingham and went there and I spoke to them 
And they said, you need a letter from the court releasing your driver license. And I said, I already went to the court and they sent me to the collections agency and they sent me to you. So bottom line was I had to have a conference call while I was at the insurance office with the collection agency. And the collection agency had to basically say, if she pays this much down, and I can't remember how much it was, I think I had to put like $250 down onto the collection of the fines for those tickets. Then they could release that and basically make it so that I could get insurance. So then I had to pay another, I think, $150 maybe for the SR-22 to get initiated. Then my payment for my collections was every month, which was, I think, $150. And my SR-22 was around $50 a month. And then I had to take all that information, go to the DOL, give them that information so they could put it in their system. And then I had to wait, I think, I think I had to wait two or three weeks before I got an approval from DOL saying you're, you're um, approved to take the driver licensing written exam. So then I had to do that. And then I had to, and I'm in work release this whole time. And, and when you're in work release program, at least back then, you're not allowed to drive anywhere on your own. You're not really allowed to even have your driver's license technically. And I did it anyway. And I actually, my boss at the time, let me use my lunch break and his car to take it to the DOL to get my driver's license. And I got it the first time, first test. I got it. I was so proud, although I knew it was against the rules. I how was, how was it against the rules? I'm not, I don't, I'm not following that. You're not allowed to have a driver's license, an active driver's license and drive while you're in work release because that's too much freedom. Wow. You can only go places either walking, biking, on a bus, or with an approved driver who's had a background check and application submitted and approved through the Department of Corrections. And was that in Skagit County or here in Whatcom County? Whatcom County, Garden Street, North Garden Street. Oh my gosh. And so I was really kind of, you know, on one hand, I was nervous because I was breaking the rules. But on the other hand, I was like, you know what? This is like, I'm doing something for myself. You know what I mean? It was like the benefit to me outweighed the risk. And luckily, I had a pretty great relationship with the CUS that was in charge of the Whatcom work release. And as soon as I got home that day, I went into his office and I said, I did something today and I don't know if I'll get in trouble for it but I want to give you my driver's license. And he goes, you got your driver's license? And I said, I did. And he's like, that's really cool. And so he said, you can't have it on you because you can't drive while you're here, but we'll put it in your locker. And so he put it in my locker and I could not wait to get out. And I didn't have a car yet. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but that process took a, probably about three months Wow. For me to, to do all that and get my license back or get it initially. And, and I, you know, of course I asked back then, even back then I was like, how can you revoke, or how can you suspend a license that's never been given? Well, because you had a driving without a license, 
now the punishment goes up if you do it multiple times, right? So it's like first degree, second degree, third degree. That's how they explain that to me, which still doesn't make sense. So what's interesting, um, okay, so hold on a minute. I want to go backwards because it's important to map this out and help people understand. Technically, in this particular case, Shanae, you had done motor vehicle violations of some kind because you were driving without a license and you're supposed to have yeah. a license. So technically, all of this stuff, if I'm a person looking at it from the outside and have no knowledge of what's going on, I could stand here and I could say, well, you were a bad girl and you should have had these problems. And so all this is your own fault, et cetera. But looking at it from the inside as a person who's trying to help people become independent, you now were sober, you'd been to prison, you dealt with all this other stuff. You were simply trying to get your life back so that you could become an upstanding citizen and look at the array of things you had to go through that just had to do with one item, getting a driver's license. Yeah. Yeah. It was as if I had never thought of having a license as being an adult, you know, that was like mm -hmm. my first step to self-sufficiency, you know, right. Right. being free. That was real true freedom is going through those steps and having that little piece of paper saying that I was allowed to drive a car. It was a huge morale boost, you know? And most of us who work and most of us who have jobs and most of us who can pay insurance bills and most of us who did in fact, maybe graduate from high school in the first place, we just take having a driver's license as an entitlement. It's just something that we have who would not have a driver's license. So let's skip another layer to people who, to the way the Department of Licensing, if you, if you don't mind, I, I want to skip forward. If you are somebody who then makes a mistake and you do in fact get your license taken away from you, and then you end up in the jail or justice system, let's talk about how the driver's license is used as a punishment tool, as a method of punishment to people who have fines and fees, because that rolls over from, from last week's conversation about money impacts. Do you want to go take that on or, or Debbie or Irene, do one of you guys want to speak to this one? I can say something real quick is I, I know people who have had criminal charges that had nothing to do with them driving. Right. They weren't, they weren't driving a car when the crime happened. They didn't run anybody over nothing but part of their sentence is a suspended driver's license what what is that why you're already going to be on probation or home monitoring or you've already done your cry your sentence inside of a jail and yet you get out and here you go again now you're still incarcerated you are still oppressed and incarcerated even outside of jail or prison so the incarceration in this case is by withholding the ability to go to work and the ability to transport and the ability to do things. It's a, it's a different form of punishment by document. Absolutely. Okay. I know Deb that you raised your hand. What were you going to say about this? Well, Joy, I didn't have specific to losing a license due to punishment. However, when uh, the clients that we work with have been incarcerated for a period of time, often what happens is they their licenses expire. And usually after 
I'm not sure the exact uh, period of time, but if it's too long that your license has been expired, you can't just renew it. You have to go through the whole process of of taking the written and taking, uh, and then you have a permit and then you practice and then you can do your, your driving. There's all these time frames. Um, and, and also with that, you have to um, pay to get, I believe it's your driving abstract if there's a, a good period of time that has passed since you've been licensed. So these are areas that are barriers for some people because they don't understand the process um, and they don't know how to go about doing any of these things. So what I can speak to for that is working with people that have had their license expired, have to start all over again. And sometimes what comes up is things that they thought they took care of paid old fines for um, for traffic violations. And if they don't have the documents to show, yes, I did pay this, even though they're fairly certain that they, that they did, they've got to pay them all over again. So um, often during incarceration, you lose your housing, you lose all your belongings, you lose your paperwork, got to start all over, got to pay those fines, even if you paid them again, because you don't have proof that you paid them. Wow. So that's an area that, that comes up. Um, the process by which if they don't have a vehicle to practice, if a friend to borrow a friend's vehicle to practice their driving so that they can do their road test, that's another barrier. <clears throat> uh, the Another barrier is the if they can't use a computer to do their, their written, they've got to find out where they can do the paper. Mm-hmm. And DOL, at least the last I checked, the local ones in Whatcom County, they didn't offer that option. You had to use a contractor. Uh, another area for barrier, a client I worked with, didn't have his license, needed to use his bike to get his tools from place to place because he was a repair person. Uh, he would occasionally drive. And that's a big risk for not just the family that might lose the vehicle because we've got somebody driving without a license. Um, And depending on the person that stops them, if they look up, there's a criminal history. Well, yeah, we're going to just, you know, maybe impound your vehicle because you have a a record and they can actually do that without any on the spot justification. So uh, another area is once a person does get a driver's license and they haven't been licensed and insured and has a vehicle, the cost doesn't involve SR-22 in this situation. It's, there's no old uh, reckless driving. But in this case, it was, yep, you don't have any credit history. You don't have an ins- auto insurance history. You're, gonna, you're a risk to us. We're going to charge you a lot for your auto insurance. So another area of, of expense, one client I worked with, what they did was have the, the husband's name listed on a vehicle that they'd gotten as the, regist- as the legal owner and the wife listed as the registered owner and insure the vehicle under the registered owner. They were able to, to get around that. 
not so in other words an option. So in other words, Debbie, what I'm hearing is that because of the rules of the insurance companies, because mm-hmm. of the rules of Department of Licensing can directly affect somebody's lives and their entire families because of something that happened with the legal injustice system. So Absolutely. if you just get a ticket or if you go to court or if you have a conviction of some kind or if you have a punishment, that triggers this other sub subcategory of, of side effects that ripples out and compounds the problem. And that's what we're also talking about with Sinead, the bureaucracy of companies and industries that make money based upon this situation. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Absolutely. It's snowballs. Snowballs is a really good word. So Irene, let's come back to you for a minute. Um, let's just start with you, actually. Let's talk about the people who you've worked with in the community who end up with a driver's license suspended or a problem and they can't they can't drive and they live out in the county somewhere. How does that work? Like, what are the problems we've run into with, with clients like that? Because, you know, if you're living in the city and most people who work in the government, they just drive to work. It's no big deal. Life's easy. If you need to get to probation or you need to get something, you just either drive, get a bus, have somebody drive you. But if people are out of the county or live further out in the county where there isn't easy transportation, talk about what we've run into there. Thank you, Joy. I I so appreciate this. And I hope our listeners are learning as much today as I am. I am so amazed at Shanae's stories. I have never heard that story about her getting her driver's license <laughs> and, and the chutzpah that it takes. I mean, <laughs> I knew when I first met you, you were important, but I, this is just <laughs> so congratulations <laughs> all these 12 or 13 years later. <laughs> yes. And I've only had like two tickets, I think, since then. Good job. Better than me. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I want to bring up about the driver's license, getting your driver's license, as as we've spoken before, many of our clients are second, third, fourth grade educated. They can't read. So how are they going to learn? And yet they're functioning citizens. They have jobs. How are they going to read the, the instructions and the manual to be able to get their driver's license? It's There's so many barriers. So that's just one thing. Um, and as far as transportation is concerned, I've, I've worked with several clients who have had their driving privileges taken away for whatever reason, and um, they live a distance away from town, from Bellingham, which is our county seat where everything happens, as far as the courts are concerned, and um, and other people are out of county. They live elsewhere. We're visiting and, and got a ticket or whatever. And um, so then have to come back to the county of jurisdiction on a regular basis. And some people are um, not, are, are maybe be employed, but have, uh, are on the lower scale as far as income is concerned. And um, often the, they have to have, because they're not in a place where there is public transportation, buses and 
buses uh, because they live in a un, uh, slightly populated, lesser populated area, and the service isn't there. You have or to even, or even if there is bus service, it may be at really bad periods of time, like seven o'clock in the morning or something exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they can't actually. It's not effective bus service, even if it is. Service. And I've seen I've seen folks ask, ask for appointments during the middle of the day or even early afternoon. And the folks that are making appointments say, well, I have an opening at 10 o'clock, take it or leave it. And there's absolutely no physical way they can be there at that time unless they were to come into to town the night before, find a place to stay and then walk or take a public bus to the courthouse. Yeah. So um these are the barriers that I have seen. And, and what a lot of people don't know is there's quite a few people on, um, I don't know the term, but they're, they have public assistance so that when they have these kinds of things, when they have outpatient treatment and they're out uh, in the outlying areas without transportation, they have the ability through the system to call a taxi and be delivered. And sometimes the treatment is only an hour, hour and a half, the classes, and the taxi driver can't wait. They have to go somewhere, probably back to town. And then when they're finished, they have to call the taxi again. Now this is all through, this is all done with taxpayer dollars. Those people who are on the lower economic scale. So the taxi is called back and then takes them back to their home, which can be uh, a quite, a, quite a distance, 100 miles or so by the time you make two or three round trips. And um, so when I realized that, that these taxi deliveries were, were coming out of the taxpayer pockets, I was stunned. And then, of course, I've had other clients who were from out of county who could take public transportation. But again, sometimes their court dates were in 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. And they would have to get to town, stay overnight, get their food and all of that, and then be in court by 9 o'clock in the morning. So, so the, the barriers are huge. And, and I know there's all kinds of arguments about that. I'm just trying to give you examples of how difficult it is and how the barriers are huge. So when we were talking about that taxi person, I remember working with a couple of different clients having to do with this. And as I recall, the cost of being able to get a taxi at the right time that would be delivered in an, one of these outer lying areas of Whatcom County where this person didn't have any other access, if she called the taxi company they had to come pick her up like an hour or two in advance. And they had, they had all this, this space where she, and, and it was going to cost her like $160 to be able to get to town and back. That's right. And, and whether that's paid by the taxpayer or whether that's, you know, through the services because the person's indigent or whether that's paid by the individual, 160 bucks round trip is expensive if you've got to go to town every week for a court appearance, or if you've got, if you have to call the taxi in order to get to a diversion service or treatment program or something else. I mean, people don't think about this. 
And most of the people who work in government have no idea that when they say you need to come in and you need to be here at 10 o'clock in the morning and we won't accommodate you later in the day because I need to have my lunch hour at such and such, there's no there's no wiggle room and no consciousness. We're just not aware of the side effect that our preemptive thinking about, well, you should just be able to do it, you know, and the, and the presumption that everybody's got a cell phone and the presumption that everybody's working with all these parts. We forget that when we're the person working in the system, just scheduling people according to our timeline. So we're not aware of the impact, the human impact on other people. And I'm, I worked with a, a client who had a cell phone. She had a computer, but she didn't get service. <laughs> there you go. So, so that was another, it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And if she hadn't had a really good job, um, there's just no way she would have been able to do it. And the other thing I want to point out is the fines and the fees that come with all of this. And, and if you don't, if you don't have the funds to pay for a treatment program, then then you can't uh, abide by the court. I don't, I don't know how it works if you if you don't have the funds. Maybe it goes on insurance. Anyhow, this is how, and people don't understand how people can have tens of thousands of dollars in fines and fees that go to collections. Mm-hmm. This is how. This is, mm-hmm. and, and this I think is something the public doesn't understand. Well, and our, and our law enforcement people no. don't understand it. No, and our don't. court people don't understand it. And our probation officers don't understand it. And our surveillance people don't understand it. And transportation doesn't understand it because we don't have a conversation about the whole nightmare that we're looking at. And that's part of why I'm actually really happy that we're starting to have these shop talk conversations with I Change Justice to bring these kinds of common sense problems forward. There is no way that when we were trying, Irene, and you and I were trying to go to the uh, Incarceration Prevention Reduction Task Force, we were trying to talk with the judges, we were trying to talk with the people inside the system who were dealing with the Whatcom County Court system, their jurisdictions in dealing with Whatcom County issues is very different than the issues that a municipality has, whether it's Sumas or Blaine or Linden or down in Seattle. And different courts have different jurisdictions and have different rules. And unless we have an open public conversation about what's actually happening to the humans, the systems always win because people can say, well, that's just the way it is. That's the law. That's the rule. Well, you know what? We humans are making those laws. We humans are making those rules. We humans are making the determinations in the court systems. We humans are the ones that are writing the tickets. And so unless we have this open public dialogue about this problem, it's impossible to solve the problem and people continue to get broken and pushed down and shoved out of the system. So it's oppression by omission. It's depression by ignorance. It's not, you know, I just want to speak up for those people who work inside the system. It's not that you're bad. It's not that the people are necessarily intending this. They just don't know. And one of the, one of the famous comments that comes from my millennial generation friends, they said, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. 
And then you still don't even know it because unless you've been there, you don't know it. So the whole, it's like this meme that you don't know until you don't know, and unless you know, and then you still don't know because you don't understand where it fits. So I know, Deb, you raised your hand for a minute. Was there something you wanted to contribute to this conversation? Because I would really like to talk about how difficult this is with family members when somebody gets a citation, like something you ran into, Shanae, and we've run into it before, where someone loses their license, supposedly for 99 years. I mean, that sounds preposterous. That couldn't possibly happen, but I know it does. But Debbie, do you want to speak before we have Shanae talk about that? Sure. I was going to um, specify that what this is called when you uh, qualify for the state uh, Medicaid insurance because you don't have the funds to be able to have private insurance. It's called Medicaid transportation in Whatcom County. It's coordinated through Northwest Regional Council and the clients that I worked with that used this service. Uh, you have to book this sometimes up to two days ahead of time. And there's an option to have someone drive you rather than um, take taxi cabs, which is really a lot more expensive. And you and the issue, the driver assisting the Medicaid client uh, at gas voucher, but that has to be after providing the current driver's license and your current insure, valid insurance card and your, you know the fact that you're driving a vehicle that is your, yours, so you have to submit all this information. It's doable and it's less expensive, but rarely do our clients have anyone that can assist them. And that's again, why the, you know, they're using taxis because so, how many people are available to, to do this for people that are trying to get their lives back on track? So our focus as a culture on papers and papers and papers and proofs and papers, I mean, some of that is done because we, we as, as employees or as protectors of, you know, we have this miss. It's almost a, a messed, up, messed up responsibility level that you want to do your job and you want to do it well because you don't want to get in trouble. So you are, we are asking people to do double redundancy and triple redundancy for something that is just common sense. So part of the problem we have, and, I, and I'm not sure if I spoke about this yesterday or not, is that the idea that we're passing laws upon laws upon laws. And then when you have a problem, you pass another law. Well, every law that you pass has to be enforced by somebody else. So the problem with bureaucracy, the problem with legal issues is that, you know, we all say, well, I don't want that to happen. So let's pass another law. Well, every law creates its own administrative boondoggle. And now the taxpayers are being broken down because we can't afford to pay all the taxes to pay for all the systems that enforce the laws that get out of whack. I mean, we're in a mess, frankly. So Shanae, let's go to you. What's that? What's the story you just told us? Sure. I have a client who was recently sentenced to um, uh, X amount of days incarcerated or whatnot or probation, but one of her underlying consequences was a suspended driver's license for 99 years. And this is a person who was not driving a car recklessly, 
She was not hurting anybody else. She, she just, it was similar to my story. She hadn't had a driver's license uh, in a very, very long time. Maybe she, I don't even know if she had one at all. Actually, I should ask her, but she had some driving on suspended tickets and then got into some trouble, borrowed a car from somebody that she didn't know was stolen. Okay. From a house full of drug addicts who said, yeah, you can use the car for however long they probably my, I, they probably got mad that she was gone too long. Who knows? And so she got in trouble for that, for having a possession of a stolen car. So they take away her driver's license for 99 years. Like she hasn't even been able to prove that she can have a license and be responsible with a license before they've taken that away from her. So and not the, only so that, the, really quick, I want to jump back because you get sentenced like I did to prison time and you're in prison and you fulfill your sentence and you already have fines you have to pay when you get out and restitution, but now you don't have a driver's license. So now you have to find a job and then you have to tell your employer, I don't have a driver's license. Well, they're going to go, well, why not? Well, now you have to disclose your personal history of, of from a mistake that was made years ago to your, to your potential employer. How embarrassing is that? That well, is oppressing. Well, so, but some people will say, so what? You know, you did the crime, you did the time. Do it, you know, get over it. But we did the time. Line, yeah. And beyond that, was the violation that was at the origin of the problem that then moved to where it is today, is the punishment relevant to? the consequence. I mean, and there's no method of looking at the, the, the punishment relative to the consequence. What you're talking about here, let's say that that client, without going into any detail around anything, let's say the client, our client as the RCC is 20 or 30 or even 40 years old, and they got 20 more years of what would be called shelf life in a business environment. You know, they got 20 or 30 more years of potentially becoming a taxpayer in the community, a revenue generating, tax producing, solid citizen person in the future. And instead what you're doing with a punishment like that is you're taking them out of the work world for the rest of their life. That's 20 or 30 yep. years not to be able to have a driver's license. And you're not only affecting them, but their children, yeah. their family members. The employers who are looking for people to work right now because they ain't got nobody wanting to work because of COVID. You know, it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's an avalanche of problems. And when we start looking at that, which is the whole point of wanting to get into this conversation in the first place, is that if we have a person who ended up with a license suspended and they can't go to work and they're the family member, let's say that they're the provider of a, of a family and they got two or three kids and they can't afford to live downtown and they're living out in the county and they have to go to work or they're a construction worker, and which is oftentimes where people who get tickets or end up with law enforcement have, you know, they can go into manual labor jobs. With manual labor jobs, they have to pack their equipment with them. So what we do is we create a system we have created collectively in our community and in our state and probably across the, well, it is across the nation because I've had clients that I've dealt with some of this. Um, 
we set up a situation that is almost impossible for the person who loses his license to get back in the game. They can't even become a functional living citizen producing results for the family. Cause if you can't take your equipment with you, if you can't get to work and like I had a client who was going to work out in the County at, at one of the, the uh, industrial places and he was supposed to be at work at like early in the morning and he couldn't get anybody to drive him back and forth. So he ended up not being able to get the one job he could get because he couldn't get back and forth in a reasonable time. And so he couldn't provide for his family. That puts the family in hock. And the family in that particular case ended up having to go in and get, you know, public uh, funds to be able to keep the family on sustenance just to keep food on the table. And so we ended up taking one person that we hobbled and it then affects four or five other people in the family and the entire family loses its standing in the community, goes clear down into poverty and they become subsistence livers. And then it eats us up from the inside out. So as a whole community economic problem, we have a nightmare. And I think this is a subject that we as a community needs to look at. So Irene, do you have some closing comments here to come up with and talk about this? Yeah, I remember several years ago, we were working with some folks and the one young man was so excited. He was just out of prison, not too long, but he, um, or any, I'm not really sure. Anyhow, he had his driver's license and, uh, he had a job every day earning $30 a day from a man who was out of prison, did not have his driver's license. I don't, I don't know the circumstances, but had a very well-paying job out of one of the refineries or in Talco was in, in business at the time. And, um, and this young man, had uh, an agreement with this fellow that worked that had this good job that he would pick him up early in the morning, take him to work round trip. Uh, uh, this was a round trip for this young man. And he was volunteering for us for a few days. And at four o'clock, he had to leave because he had to go back out to Cherry Point to pick his person up so that he would get another $30. $30 a trip is what this young man was willing to pay so that he could be employed and get back on his feet. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how long that situation lasted, but I was, I was stunned that this man was um, willing. He, he was, he was forced to do whatever he could in order to be able to have a job. So this is the, these are the barriers and then these are the extreme circumstances by which these folks are able to continue to try to get their life together. So in a, in a period of time where we are already dealing with so much grief, we're already dealing with social isolation, we're already dealing during the COVID crisis with separation and isolation and oppression and challenges, we're dealing with these systemic and under, under the belly, under the radar problems that we're not talking about anywhere in the community. And 
I'm really pleased that as a restorative community coalition over the years that we've been doing this, we've been diagramming so many of these bottlenecks. We've, we've created a roadmap to how do we rebuild our community? How do we start from the beginning and start putting people back to work in local communities? How do we start doing restorative justice in small neighborhoods and start rebuilding the fabric of our lives from the inside out? And we're over the next nine to 10 months, we're going to start working with the community to pull more and cross pollinate and, and cross generational conversations so that we as a whole community of humans who live here as families, because many of us, I mean, one of the things I noticed at the, when we had that homeless um, problem down at the city hall at Camp 210, there were county residents who were inside there protesting to try to help or support their family members who were living inside the city. That was a countywide homeless problem. It was a countywide emergency crisis. And yet the city was being blamed for everything. It was almost like there was this really interesting scapegoating of the city when the problem is actually a societal problem. The assault that happened there on the people when the police were called and we had this uprising, if you will, it actually turned into an emotional heartbreak for everybody in the county because we witnessed people who we love, people we worked with, people, I mean, even if you weren't connected, there were people there who your neighbor knew or who you'd worked with in your job. And there were people that were hurt, like a lot of people were hurt emotionally and psychologically because the homeless were disconnected from us. So the bottom line is we need to do a new community reconciliation process. We need to have these social conversations. They need to cross beyond just the Whatcom County justice system. We need to talk about our civic responsibility, all these corporations that are making money on the indigent, on the punishment system, because those corporations are not controlled by any rules. And we need to cross-pollinate between all these different silos to come up with community solutions. So that's where we're at at this point. Over the next nine months, we're going to do some interviews. We're going to do more public disclosure. We're going to do more conversations here on I Change Justice. And then we're going to start bringing some of these complexities, these paradoxes, and these problems forward in a visual manner on a YouTube channels where we do PowerPoints and we talk about these complexities because it isn't about any one person being right or wrong or any organization being right or wrong. The problem is not about blaming any one person or group or whatever. It's not political. This is not a political problem. This is a humanitarian problem. It's a human problem. It's a family problem. It's a local problem. And we can only fix it locally. It's not something that can come down from the top down. It's not something that if we pay more tax money, it's going to solve it. We actually get need to get into our own homes and families and start listening and understanding to the problems, then correcting the barriers where they are. Um, Debbie or Sinead, do you guys have closing comments you need to you want to make? I just want to say to our listeners out there, if you're an employer, be kind. <laughs> Be yeah, understanding. Yeah. If you don't know the information, maybe that moment that you have someone come to you and say, 
I would really love to work for you, but I don't have a way to work. Take five minutes and Google a way for them to get to work. It's right there on your phone. You can Google transportation options for people without a license. It's not that difficult. Please try. And the other thing, I, and we'll talk about this on another, you know, money pit conversation, the complications to employers who have an employee who gets arrested. There's a whole night, nightmare that can happen to employers that can actually put employers out of business because somebody else got arrested. And we don't even realize it's happening because no one wants to talk about it. Many of these subjects are shaming and embarrassing and people don't want to talk about it because number one, it's baffling. It's too big. But you know what? We are living here. This is our home. This is our county. These are people that we know we have to tackle these subjects. Yeah, Deb, you wanted to say something? Yes, Joy, thanks. I was researching a little bit and I found that nationally, which included state expenditures, so what this um, transportation by taxi uh, for Medicaid, it's called non-emergency medical transportation. And just in 2018, it cost taxpayers $2.6 billion. Wow. So this is money that could, I mean, there's not a cap on it because it's a need-based thing. And yes, access to medical care is extremely important. However, I believe that if we look at how we can do this differently in a community, we can save a lot of tax dollars and a lot of frustration. The stress involved with trying to coordinate this um, for these individuals that need to use that type of transportation, there's there's definitely got to be better ways to to do this. So. Um, thanks for le letting us share all this information and thank you to our listeners. Please um, comment, you know, email us, whatever, and, and share your ideas. I'm sure you have some as you hear these conversations. And thank yes. you, ladies. Irene, closing comments? Thank you, Joy. This has been so awesome. And I just want to thank our listeners and, and do a shout out to those employers who have supported people with conviction histories, who have um, made it uh, available for their employees to go get treatment while they're, uh, they're there's a, and I don't know what the process or program is, but they, uh, I guess it's maybe insurance through the employer where their employees can go to treatment uh, without any cost or much cost to the person who needs the treatment. Uh, and that's all done through the employer. And, and the job then waits for the employer when they, or for the employee when he gets out of treatment or yeah. when they get out of treatment. And yeah. uh, I just, my, it just makes me feel so good when I see that people are supported in that manner. And the other thing that many employers may not know is that there, the state has insurance. They have a bond that uh, I don't know what the bond is. Uh, it's $25,000, maybe $10,000 for the employee through the state for someone who has, is coming back from incarceration, getting their job in the community. The employer, uh, that, that's through the state, doesn't cost the employer anything. And there's, I don't remember what the 
tax write-off is for hiring someone within the first year of getting out of prison. So there's lots of reasons why employers could take a chance on someone just returning. And and like Shanae says, they're just getting out. The some some people just need to be understood a little bit and given that second chance. So thank you so much for all the information that's come forward today. And thank you to all the employers and all the people. There are so many people who try to help people and you do it silently. Constantly people do step up and do help. And it gives me great hope for our future that people are helping. Shanae, closing comment and then we got to go. Yeah, I just wanted to say that the bondable opportunity is actually up to $50,000 per, per wow. employee. So if you have a, a employee that you're interested in hiring, but you're not too sure because of their criminal history, I get that. Just remember, there is an option for them to be bondable. So there is no liability for you as the employer. Wow. That's all I have to say. And yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we haven't had time as a coalition to get all these answers. You know, it's a pretty overwhelming job just to dig up all the trouble and try to help people and the needs. We could use donations. We could use support. We could use fund funding to be able to help the volunteers who are here and to help us publish some of our research, help us bring forward solutions that we've got. We have so much we could do if we had some financial support donated to us go to therestorativecommunity.org, send us an email, ask us questions, um, donate. We've got a button on there for donations. We are working to bring solutions to this community and we appreciate all your awareness and thinking on this matter. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.